Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open with me to Esther chapter 3. Kids, young people, do you guys have children's bulletins? No? Some people? They're out there. Okay. If you don't have one, we're still going to do that. You guys fill them out, turn them in afterwards, get three in a month, and we will do donuts and juice. Okay? So if you don't have one, go ahead and go into the back right by that column and go ahead and grab one. As you're turning to Esther chapter 3, listen again to the words from Habakkuk. I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. I think this verse could be summed up in two simple words. Deliver us. Deliver us. But deliver us from what? Deliver us was the cry of the Israelites as they slaved under ruthless Egyptian slave masters for over 400 years. And for a lot of people, even today, deliver us has again become a cry. Now, I'm not a big government conspiracy type of guy. I don't talk politics. In fact, what Mark shared up here is probably more political conversation than you've ever heard me do. Okay, I am not one of those guys that will say America is or ever has intended to be God's new promised land. I'm also not one of those guys that's going to say that the president and all other politicians are leading us to the gateway of hell itself. That's just not who I am. Okay, you won't hear me say things like that. I think arguments, some people call them conversations, some people actually can have conversations, about politics oftentimes create more division than they're worth, whether with Christians or non-Christians. Now, I think there is a time and a place for political conversations. More often than not, that's not with me, because my experience is it hasn't gone well. But there are people who that and do that well. So this is just personal feelings of mine, okay? That's why over the last 250 or so sermons, you will have never, you could go back and you can listen, and, and there won't be any with a government focus until today. So why break that streak? Whew. It's because as I've meditated on this verse in Habakkuk chapter 3, and as I've looked at the passage we're covering from our text today from the Explore the Bible curriculum, Esther chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, I couldn't help but ask, could this be read as if it's our government today? Or could it be read as if it's the culture that we're living in today? Now, if our answer to either of those questions is yes, then I've got to ask, are we crying out for the deliverance that was so needed in the time of our text just as loudly today? Are we asking God for his renown today? Let's take a look at our text and see if what I've wrestled through this week makes sense to the rest of us. This is Esther chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Sometime later, a King Xerxes, also known as King Ahasuerus, promoted Haman, son of Hamandatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. 
for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, during the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim, to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day was selected, it was March 7th, nearly a year later. Verse 8, Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamandatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. That is the word of the Lord this morning. Can you see how it could look a little bit like our government today? See how maybe it would look a little bit like our culture today? And from the beginning, the highest official promotes somebody else who is above everybody else, and everybody is supposed to show respect for him, because that was an edict of the king. Now, there are times when we can hang our hats on a certain political official or a certain cultural official. You know, this is going to be the person. That is going to be the person who's going to restore us as a nation to what we were supposed to be, to what God intended us to be. Now, there are also times when we can be adamantly opposed to somebody. That person needs to go. They're not a Christian, and yet they're supposedly leading a Christian nation. Now, whether we are for or against There are still people in our culture, there are still people in the church who would do the modern day equivalent to bowing down to certain government or cultural leaders like we see at the beginning of Esther chapter 3. But then again, there are still the Rosas of the world. You know, the Rosas. December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks. She did not move seats on the bus. She did not bow down or cater to the, to the laws that were in effect, much like Mordecai. The end of chapter, uh, verse 2 says, But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. You know, I've got to wonder, I spent some time re-looking at the story of Rosa Parks, and I had to wonder if there were people who tried to get her to, to, to move. I mean, not just move seats, but Rosa, what are you doing? I mean, there, there was time when the bus driver had stopped. 
And when he called the police, there had to be time from when he called to when they got there where she sat in the seat that she refused to move from when others said, wait, Rosa, come on, what are you doing? There were three other African Americans that did get up and move. They had to have said to her, no, come on, you know, the cops are coming, let's go. They must have questioned her as to why she was doing what she was doing. But she did not cater. She did not bow. And neither did Mordecai. Verses 3 and 4. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why? Why? Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? And they spoke to him day after day, it says. But he still refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to the head honcho. They spoke to Haman to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since he was a Jew. Mordecai, it seems, was a man standing up for his faith. He was standing up for not bowing down. Allegiance to God alone, it appeared. You know, and there's still people today, still plenty of followers of Christ who are willing to stand up. They're willing to stand against society. And oftentimes, when that happens, whether it's culture or whether it's elected officials, society sees this as defiance and they have the same response that Haman had. Anger. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Filled with rage, the text says. And looking for a way to destroy an entire people group, an entire faith practice. Perhaps looking for a way to put regulations on an entire faith practice. Maybe we talk about rules about prayer in school. Or rules about who can say what or when or how in the school systems when it comes to talking about Jesus and Bible studies and if we could talk about how far, there are rules as to how far somebody can stand outside a school building to give away Bibles. Regulations. Trying to conform a certain faith practice. Maybe. Maybe we could talk about the divisive topic of 2014. Same-sex marriages and the fear that the government will force a pastor or a church to perform those ceremonies. Or else close the church down. Maybe it's not enough for government officials to grab the Westboro Baptist churches of our nation and and have dialogue with them. Maybe they see the radical stances of one or two churches and they say, let's just put regulations on everybody in that faith. Does it sound a little bit like Haman's plan in Esther chapter 3? Haman's approach. His rhetoric to King Xerxes sounds very familiar to the rhetoric used when trying to subdue, trying to corral a group claiming to be Christians. Because Haman didn't focus on what the Jews were for. His focus was what the Jews were against. And he painted a picture in the negative. Look at verse 8. He goes to the king and he says this. There is a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. Painting a negative picture. 
Now, when you hear of cultural leaders, when you hear of government leaders that are trying to put regulations on followers of Christ, do you ever hear them talking about the selfless acts of service that Christians have in war-torn countries? Do you hear them talking about their love for neighbor or their care for the homeless? Not very often. When they're trying to put regulations on our faith, they're saying, no, these people are hypocritical. They're save us focused. They're sheltered. They're judgmental. They're painting the picture of the negative. And culture can paint the picture of the negative. Oftentimes, much like in our story, when people are trying to create new laws, they, they go and they say, hey, you know, I've got deep pockets. And my people have deep pockets too. After sharing how bad the Jews were, Haman said to the king, if it pleases you, Issue a decree that they all be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. So 10,000 sacks of treasure. What does is, what is your translation say? Anybody? It's verse um, 9. 10,000 talents. Okay. So a talent in Scripture was equivalent to a day's wage. So that's a long time, Right? It's a lot of money. In fact, one person that I read said that was about equivalent to $60 million today. Wow. So he's saying, you know what? They don't follow the same rules. They do things differently. And by the way, I have a ton of cash. So what do you think? Well, the king's response, as is so often culture's response and governmental response, do as you wish. Verse 10 and 11. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing a signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamandatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. Now in our story, it's pretty immediate that the Jews, or it's pretty clear that the the Jews are going to need some immediate deliverance. And verse 7 even tells us it's going to be about a year when that needed deliverance takes place sat there in my office this past week and kind of looked at the calendar and thought, is there some sort of election that could be coming up that maybe would put the right leaders in place that would then save us as a nation? And then I thought, that's, that's just not the right question. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2 says, Oh Lord, we have heard all about you. We are filled by awe by your amazing works And in this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. I want to put a little asterisk right now. There's a good picture of it right here. Because honestly, this has just been hard for me to talk politics. It has been a struggle. I want you to know that, or maybe I should say this, I'm hoping that nobody leaves here thinking James is anti-America, James is anti-government, James is anti-culture, James is anti a certain political party or a certain person in office. Don't hear any of that, okay? What I want you to hear is I had to wonder, did Esther chapter 3 sound similar to some of the things we were doing? We're, we're uh, approaching, we're, we're, what's the word I'm looking for? We're dealing with today. That's what I am getting at. 
And the more I thought about this little asterisk, the more I realized from a surface reading, that's just not near enough. We need to push deeper, and I'm going to say that I don't think it becomes a political issue when we do push deeper. Let me explain. What sparked Haman's rage? Anybody? Why did he get mad? Okay, Mordecai didn't bow. That's what it looks like, right? A refusal of a person to bow down. And I'd say that played a role, but I don't think it was the only variable in the equation. Watch this. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to how uh, Haman is described. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamandatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles. Son of Hamandatha, the Agagite. Okay, that means he was the descendant of a man named Agag. Say that with me, Agag. Oh, shame on the mom who named their kid that. Okay, now let's look at Mordecai and how he was described. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. It says, At that time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. He was a descendant from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. Now, a descendant of Kish. Knowing that, don't you see why there's animosity between Haman and Mordecai? It's Kish versus Agag. Don't you guys know that story? I didn't either. So let me read to you what enlightened me from the Holman Old Testament commentary. It said, After the Jews left Egypt under Moses' leadership, they journeyed through the hostile and harsh environment of the Sinai Peninsula. At Rephidim, the Amalekites attacked. It was an exhaustive battle that the Israelites eventually won, but the bitter hatred between two peoples continued. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19, the Jews were told that when they finally settled in Canaan, they were to blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Now, when Israel did settle the land, Saul was king, And God instructed him to take his army and annihilate, I said it right this week, and annihilate the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. That's 1 Samuel 15, verse 2. Saul attacked, but he disobeyed God's order. He spared the king. The king was named Agag, along with the best sheep and cattle. Now, angered at Saul's disobedience, the prophet Samuel did as God commanded and executed Agag with the sword. So Agag is the king of the Amalekites, this ruthless king of the Amalekites. Haman, in our story today, is identified as the Agagite. He's related to this historical enemy of Israel, the Amalekites, and more specifically to the ruthless king. Now the name given to Mordecai, son of Kish, connects him in ancestry to Saul, the king who attacked the Amalekites. So these two ancient enemies met again and the historical animosities converged in Persia between the descendants of Haman and Mordecai. Did you catch all that? The Jews, Mordecai's people, had been bitter enemies of the Amalekites, Haman's people, with Haman descended from their worst king. So bitter enemies, years upon years, maybe that's another component as to why Mordecai would not bow. 
And that's probably another component as to why when Haman found out he was a Jew, he wasn't just satisfied with punishing Mordecai. Here's this chance for ancient enemies and ancient people groups that hated each other. Finally, Haman will be able to exterminate them all. Let's jump back to today, our society today. We've got some racial tension in the news, yes? I would argue that it's more than just a white police officer shooting a black man. It dates back to decades upon decades upon decades of racial unrest, of ways one people group has treated another people group. And even more so today than ever before, we need to cry out for deliverance, right? God, we have heard what you have done. We've been amazed at your works. Deliver us like you've done in times gone past. Now, I wonder if we can push our story even more. Okay, hopefully what you're hearing me say this morning is that there should be more to our cry for deliverance than just deliverance from a modern government or from a modern society. Hopefully you're hearing me say that there's been groups of people that have treated other groups of people poorly, and maybe some of that is what we need deliverance from. And I'll go even further in our story. When we hear of Mordecai's relationship to King Saul, maybe it sparks the memory that King Saul was the first king of the Israelites. So I want to ask, what if our need for deliverance comes from, at least in part, a choice that the Israelite people made that got Saul elected king in the first place. You see, uh, Samuel was aging as a prophet. And the people came to him and said, we want a king. Samuel was not in favor of that. God was not in favor of that. And yet, it was all part of God's plan. Just listen to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. It says, Samuel was displeased with their request, and he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. The Israelites wanted to follow a person, a king they could see, hear, feel, touch. And yet, as Yahweh so aptly pointed out, this was actually a behavior that had been going on for quite some time. The people had made a habit of abandoning the Lord to follow other gods. And I would argue that that habit dated all the way back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve took a bite of a piece of fruit. They chose to follow themselves and their own desires instead of following God's instructions. You know, that bite from the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a bite of another god, the god of self. And self has been infecting us, contaminating us, polluting us, poisoning, poisoning us, and calling for our worship ever since. Should we not cry out for God to deliver us from that? You know, in our story, 
in Esther, a man named Haman conspired to blot out from under the face of heaven the entire Jewish people. I think it was not because the Jews were a threat to the Persian Empire. I don't even think it was all that much because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman, nor do I think it was all that much because they were distant enemies. I think it's because there was a god of self running rampant in Persia. Now, doesn't that sound like today? It's easy in our text to see some of the symptoms. We could diagnose a hunger for power, a greed, a deceptiveness so a person could get his way. Perhaps we could see hints of pride, obsession for respect, a distaste for others who were not like himself. These are things we could deduce, symptoms of Haman or Mordecai in their sickness of self, in their wrestling of which God to worship. For us today, I think we have the same struggle. I think whether we're sitting inside the walls of a church on a Sunday morning or whether we're not, we all wrestle with the God of self. So even though I've talked about anti-government, anti-society, us versus them, you know, restrict a certain people group because they're different, I don't think we need to blame our deliverance, our need for deliverance on any of those things. I think we need to blame our, our need for deliverance on the God of self. We do need deliverance. Lord, deliver us from ourselves. Deliver us from ourselves. My take home for today is simple. Okay, first Sunday of the new year. I would encourage you guys, go home, spend this week asking God, God, are there areas in my life where self still reigns, where self still rules, where I still wrestle with this God of self? And if you point something out, ask him to take it away. Beg him. Plead with him. I've wrestled with this this past week. I've turned to a couple people and said, man, I am a selfish person. So I'll be on my knees this week as well. We need deliverance. I need deliverance. As the prophet Habakkuk said, Lord, we have heard of your amazing works. We are filled by awe with your amazing works. And in this time of our deep need, help us again. Lord, in 2015, help us again as you did in years gone by. In your anger, remember your mercy. Jesus, that is our prayer this morning. We recognize that every one of us, to some degree, struggles with this, this, uh, this rub, this tension of the God of self, the sickness of self. And we recognize that perhaps that is what drives all these other things that we could be calling out for deliverance from. Bottom line, Lord Jesus, this morning we need you. Maybe more than ever before, we need you to rule in our own lives. We need you to rule in this church. We need you to rule and reign in this city, in this nation, in this world. God, our prayer this morning is that of Habakkuk. In the ways you have done in ages past, do so again. Deliver us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.